So welcome back to the Python People podcast, um, the home for data leaders to share stories with the tech and data community. And this week, we wish a warm welcome to Dmitry Sitchev. Dmitry, hello. Uh, thanks for uh, for coming in to visit us today. Hi, Guy. Uh, thank you for having me here. You're most welcome. You're most welcome. So, um, Dmitry, you are currently um, the director of AI for Connects One. Uh, which is an award-winning omni-channel customer engagement platform. And I think from our very first chat, um, it's fair to say that you've had a particularly interesting journey uh, in your role there, you know, building out both the AI side of the product from scratch and pretty much growing the whole data science team from scratch as well. So today we thought that we'd pick your brains on how you've gone about doing that and, um, yeah, hopefully hear a little bit more about your... uh, your uh, your journey uh, in that business. So before we, we we talk about that, I guess um, you know, and all the great work you've done at Connects One. Uh, let's talk a bit about you. Um, so, yeah, talk us through your journey uh, through data science and and I guess how you've arrived into uh, to tech leadership, if you'd be so kind. Of course, yeah. So uh, I started in a in a most non technical field. Actually, my my first degree is in uh, languages pretty much uh, kind of the, the opposite of tech. I did a uh, bachelor's in English and German. And subsequently, you know, I thought, okay, what do I do then? Um, the, the natural progression to me seems seemed to be, okay, why not do a master's? And my, my next choice was actually decided to do a master's in linguistics. Linguistics is a, essentially a study uh, of languages. When people ask, do you actually learn a particular language? No, it's, uh, it's a science, it's scientific matter uh, that looks at different uh, branches of um, language, how they work, how they structure. For instance, you look at uh, sentences, how uh, they work, uh, what makes a question a question, how you pronounce certain things, you know, the phonetics. So I was particularly interested in 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 the in the, in the science of phonetics. Uh, that's a, that's a branch of linguistics that uh, looks at sounds, how we pronounce, how we articulate them, and naturally it kind of led led me to my first job in speech was uh, which was a, a research engineer working on commercial. Uh, automated speech recognition systems. The natural overlap from phonetics background and into technology, that's what, that was the first step into technology from a non-technological field. And then I spent quite uh, a few years uh, developing uh, commercial um, uh, text-to-speech and speech-to-text uh, systems. Uh, after that, I kind of branched out into the world of contact centers. Uh, contact centers, you know, as these days are sort of omni-channel engagement platforms pretty much, but uh, contact centers were heavily uh, using the speech technology. Uh, you can think of those applications that, you know, take calls uh, and you're interacting with the machine, a robot, so it greets you, it asks you for your, say, date of birth, your account number. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the core of it lies, again, the same uh, uh, the same uh, application of uh, speech-to-text um, uh, technology. So spent quite a good number of contact centers, and uh, after that uh, ended up, uh, you know, the, I think the, the goal in my desire was obviously just to stand beyond speech and to extend the, the knowledge, the application of my machine learning to, to, to wider uh, uh, fields, uh, and hence uh, so I ended up uh, actually uh, working for Connex. Cool. So it's kind of been a journey from a, quite a non-technical background and ended up... Um, in a technical field, you know, it's kind of a, a circle of life, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. I'm always really interested to hear people's journey into data science because mm-hmm. um, I guess it's, it's one of those 
relatively newfangled. I mean, yeah. I mean like statistics and, and that kind of thing have been around obviously you know, since the seventies in in the real world. But um, it's a uh, yeah newfangled field, I guess, and it, it's attracting I think a lot of very bright, curious, sort of problem solving mindset people into the into the industry. And uh, yeah, I can really see that sort of overlap between linguistics and like say phonetics, especially when you think about you know areas like NLP within data science obviously it's a, a huge area um you know with um, a lot of uh, investment going into it so uh yeah brilliant okay we're really really uh, really interesting to understand that so talk us through then i guess your role within connect one the journey you've been on kind of what you were tasked to do when you, you started there and uh you know i suppose uh where we are today and how how the last few years have gone for you of course so uh, when i first started um i think we Barely had any data scientists, probably just one data scientist in the company. And the first brief to build an in-house uh, speech-to-text uh, speech uh, system. You know, so that's why I guess I was uh, picked for, 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 for the job. Um, the challenges of building uh, such a system for, for a contact center are, are massive. You, know, you deal with um, quite noisy uh, speech channel, you know, agents talking to customers in, in a noisy corporate environment. There are obviously accents involved. Uh, sometimes we have to deal with very compressed speech, you know, where uh, the, the, there's not a lot of in, in the signal. So there were a lot of challenges about building a quite of and fully scaled uh, speech recognition system that um, will be able to understand the accents of the North, of the South, of Americas, of South Africa, etc. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, uh, it was a quite a challenging task. We only had about uh, one, one data science at the time. So essentially, we started uh, tackling uh, the problem, trying, to, trying um, path A, path B, making sure we have a couple of plans uh, in, in our back pocket if something doesn't work out. And at the same time, kind of grow, growing, uh, growing up the team as we completed this first project successfully. There were other projects that were rolling in. Uh, so, yeah, I think from... Year one to year three, we've, grow, we've managed to grow the team uh, from um, about one to people to now fifteen people. Wow! Yeah, uh, quite quite an amazing journey. So, uh, if we had to sort of uh, summarize, so my, my my main duties and responsibilities lie in essentially building and enhancing Connex One's propositions in terms of AI feature and functionality, mm -hmm. and also grow the team and uh, enhance uh, our our company. Fantastic. Great. So Amazing is, talent. Yes, yeah, so I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about how mm. you've built that team and, um, you know, kind of that's a, a hell of a journey to go from, you know, first person through the door to a team of 15. Um, so great work there. Um, but, yeah, in terms of, um, I suppose, how you've gone about building that team, talk us through a little bit about are there any particular approaches that you take when it comes to scaling a team and um yeah talk us through your approach to that sure and i'll be happy to share some of the some of the stories and some experiences that probably will be handy for anybody who tries to build a team from uh ground up from scratch and, and expand on it uh first i want to talk about division of labor <laughs> uh as most data scientists will know the the data scientists come in very very variety different varieties different flavors of what is normally known uh, under the gen generic umbrella of data scientists. For instance, you've got data engineers, you've got data scientists, you've got machine learning engineers. So at Connex, we distinguish between data scientists and machine learning engineers. Mm -hmm. So data scientists essentially 
uh, uh, those uh, people who know the uh, all the inside outs of machine learning, all the algorithms, they take the data, they analyze the data, they try to spot the patterns, and then based on what's, uh, what, what they're required to build, they try different algorithms. Uh, they apply these algorithms to see what particular algorithm produces a better solution. So they, all they do, they, they, they work kind of uh, offline, uh, different experimentation involved. Sometimes, you know, you try path A, it doesn't really, really lead you anywhere. You've got to step back and try something else. So once they're happy with the solution, once they found the best algorithm that works best for them, they hand over their work to machine learning engineers. And the job of machine learning engineers uh, is actually take the code, which may not necessarily be uh, quite production ready. So uh, take take the code and essentially productionize it, put it into production. Make sure it works. Make sure it can it work can work under load. Make sure they it's uh, optimizable and make sure they write good, clean, functional code. Mm. So having this distinction between data scientists who don't don't necessarily know how to deploy things or may appreciate certain difficulties around deployment and machine learning engineers really helped us, you know, work uh, seamlessly and uh, drive uh, the product together and roll out the product into production. That's one thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's just a question around that because I think it's a really interesting differentiation because like you say, you know, any, any sort of machine learning based application, uh, especially when you're building it from scratch, has got that end to end of, you know, the ideation and, and initial kind of model mm-hmm. building all the way through to deploying that, that model. Um, and I totally agree with you. I think it's a different approach a different skill set you know to actually a lot of people that go into that initial kind of data science field haven't necessarily written production quality code before or maybe come from more of a software engineering background obviously very numerate very intelligent people but haven't necessarily had that um and we get a lot of companies that come to us and 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 look for the, the unicorn, you know, the kind of end-to-end specialist that that is able to to go all the way through from building the model to, um, you know, uh, writing production quality code and deploying it. Um, whereas, obviously, you've chosen to differentiate and, and separate those yep. two roles. And I think that's a really interesting approach and one that, that possibly is missed on quite a few companies. Mm. Um, so, yeah, why did you choose to do that specifically? So, uh, like you said, uh, there's often a task for unicorn because some startups start, start sort of constraints around, uh, you know, resources that, that they have. Uh, you even see with data scientists, sometimes uh, there's a brief to hide data science which knows all the various aspects of data science, including, say, the, the expert in natural language processing, in forecasting, etc. That thing does not exist unless you get somebody who is... Um, has been in the industry for I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, and they had an exposure to a particular field for a good four or five number of years. Because ultimately, th- the reason we decided to split is because we wanted to have a certain degree of um, having a certain degree of certainty that what we build will actually work. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, data scientists specialize and know better, uh, know better about algorithms. And, you know, the uh, machine engineers are more pragmatic in terms of, you know, they foresee things that may or may go wrong. It's slightly different mindset in terms of what uh, they're doing, what they're actually supposed to do. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really wise approach, actually. And I think, like I said, once you get to a certain size or a certain scale where maybe you're not constrained as much by budget, which maybe earlier stage businesses yeah. are. Um, and, and, and often, you know, data scientists come from us, not, not all, but lots of them come from, from, from um, commercial settings. And, you know, whilst this is maybe particularly good for, for what they're doing, the data science work, the, the, the appreciation of complexity and actual, the complexity of deployment and things that may go 
wrong uh, in actually in application when it's deployed is not necessarily something that you cover you you discover when actually working in an institution in a lab in a sort of academic field absolutely yeah i mean if you think about it in the real terms i mean data science is obviously this huge umbrella isn't it in today's world that sits across so many different techniques and disciplines but if you actually think about the innate work that a research data scientist might do in a you know more of a research focused environment and then that of a more of an ml ops engineer that's focused on deploying into the cloud at scale they're very, very separate, aren't yeah, they, in terms yeah. of the day-to-day? Having said that, whilst we've just spoken about this kind of division of labor that we've implemented at Connex One, we, we then kind of... We, we, we then organize um, the data science and machine learning engineers into kind of squads. The okay. squad is a small group of, say, three, four people. And there, this is where we actually we mix data scientists and machine learning engineers. When we were, yeah. when we were first starting uh, initially, you know, let's say when we had a team of about three, four people, it made sense to have just one squad. As we grew as, as a data team, um, as a data science team, as a company, uh, it made sense to initially um, uh, add and group scheduled sort of squads around the products, mm-hmm. um, our Connex products. And then when we scaled even further, so we decided to uh, center squads around kind of uh, data science specialties. For instance, we've got the speech squad, which is looking at speech to text, text to speech technologies. We've got NLP squad, you know, which is growing very fast, as probably uh, you can guess. Uh, now we've got about probably five data scientists in NLP squad. Mm-hmm. And we've also got forecasting squad. And yet again, another area of speciality okay. uh, that we de- uh, definitely need um, expertise in very specific niche expertise in so again comes back to the question of uh don't necessarily believe uh in the idea of a unicorn <laughs> yeah absolutely i totally agree uh and question around mm. how as a leader you sort of built that culture again listening to your approach there makes total sense and the fact you've got these squads where certain skill sets align uh yeah makes a lot of sense how have you gone about sort of marrying together those different squads um you know to kind of create a harmonious culture where potentially you know there could be a little bit of a division of us versus them in in you know certain instances um yeah how have you gone about doing that uh, of course so we we do work in the agile um manner so we every day we have stand-ups uh, every two weeks we have ceremonies uh we plan our work so in the squad obviously everybody in within the squad everybody knows what's going on everybody's alerted to uh if any problems arise on, on a daily basis. So people within the squad pretty much know what they're doing. But also, as we've got different squads, we also need to be able to share ideas and, you know, keep each other abreast of the pro- of, of the, of the, of the uh, progress. So we actually have um, monthly group meetings okay. where uh, it could be any member of any squad, you know, they come and present about the work they've been doing, and, you know, get any input, uh, any feedback. Um, We've also actually recently started a machine learning uh, book uh, 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 paper club, okay. uh, Brown Brown Bag, where actually we're taking our out of an hour of lunch and actually somebody picks a machine learning paper and we come and discuss um, this paper in more detail. And actually that club oh, cool. called actually Data Science Guild is open to just audiences beyond the data science team. People uh, nice. who are interested in, in machine learning yeah. can come and also participate in it. So Brilliant. definitely there are... Uh, uh, areas, ways, and for, forum forums to actually to enhance the data, the the knowledge sharing, uh, the uh, all the updates within within the, the group and the team. Brilliant, yeah, I think that's a really smart approach, and I think that's one of the 
the more and more people I speak to I see as very successful data leaders, I think are those people that that get the inclusive nature of of what they need to be doing and actually taking, you know, stakeholders within the business on that journey, making them inclusive, making yeah. them part of, of, you know, the work, the good work that's being oh, done in uh, data science. Of yeah. course, but none of this would work if you didn't have the support uh, from the top management stakeholders. You know, yeah. Connex One, co- uh, the stakeholders definitely uh, invest and place a big, massive em- emphasis uh, on, on AI. It's extremely important uh, to have fully AI-enabled products, uh, yeah. Connex One. I think that's a really, really good point because there's a lot of companies out there that, you know, hear of data science, hear of AI as the kind of new sexy thing. They're like, right, we need to build a data science team, we need to build an AI team. But actually, do they really mean it? And do they really give the support and the resources that, you know, people in your position need to execute on that? Mm. And very often I see a lot of leaders that, you know, go into roles that I know are fantastic candidates, you know, really strong data leaders, but it almost feels like they're, they're being asked to do the job with, one hand tied behind their back, um, you know, and they're kind of being set up to fail a little bit. And I think that, you know, if you've got that buy-in at the top level around actually, you know, being an AI forward focused business, um, that really helps, yeah. Yeah, and in, in the sense that actually I was lucky, I didn't have to promote to explain uh, what AI does. There's still, of course, certain myths uh, about AI, and I, 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 I do get and get up and dis- dispel. But you know, from from that perspective, you know, our CEO and CEO are very technically savvy and I was in a lucky position not to kind of uh, fight in my corner so to speak yeah absolutely well I'm sure you would have done a good job of it anyway but it's uh, good to know that you're halfway there um cool so one more question around Mm. the the team I guess before we go on to um a bit of the kind of market in in a wider sense within data science um so you've obviously started to let's say division of labor create (laughs) these squads split people in specialisms aside from those specialisms that align with those squads when you're hiring for a data scientist into your team, you obviously seemingly built a really strong um, you know, backbone of, of great people. Are there any particular traits or characteristics that you look for that's kind of universal across all data scientists and machine learning engineers um, that, you, you know, that you would look for in your process? Of course. Uh, again, uh, I'll continue that theme of divisional labors because I'll talk about some skills, some sort of technical skills that are important to uh, this or that camp, but also highlight a couple of uh, soft skills that are actually uh, absolutely pertinent for data scientists versus the machine learning engineer. So when we actually look uh, at a data scientist, we, we do look for, first of all, a very good generic understanding of data science and machine learning. But like I already mentioned, um, in certain squads we require particular expertise, uh, like be it uh, natural language processing, expertise of forecasting. So like I said, it's impossible to, uh, you know, have, 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 have Jack... <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so the those kind of uh, expertise, NLP specialty, forecasting are very niche. Again, and this is an additional great bonus um, when you are, if you have those uh, skills. Uh, I don't think it's really uh, productive for somebody who's never had any experience in-depth experience in NLP particularly apply for those positions because, like I said, there's very niche-specific skills. They only come through three years uh, of experience and a practical application of the skill. So, like like I said, good for data scientists, good uh, uh, generic uh, machine learning uh, knowledge, uh, speciality if it's required, uh, you know, exposure to all the libraries. But the, m- most importantly, as far as soft skills concerned, we place a lot of emphasis into it, great communication skills. 
ability to communicate, and that just goes beyond, uh, you know, daily, uh, day-to-day business, you know, stand-ups, etc. Ability to communicate, present very clearly, concise, command your audience, is uh, something that doesn't necessarily come to people, to everybody naturally. It's a skill you may actually uh, start growing, uh, perfecting, mm. but a skill which is very important for a data scientist. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And on that note as well, do you find the communication piece is, is almost that, you know, a strong data scientist is able to almost do that translation piece between, you know, recognizing when they're speaking to a very technically focused individual and actually a non-technical stakeholder yeah. and sort of address their you know, adjust their language, adjust their approach accordingly. So, you know, they're sort of talking to people on their level. I would say, yeah, that's even the higher level of pilotage, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, if you're able to do that, that's great. But even the basic uh, basic thing, like being able to express your idea, what you're thinking clearly, concisely, this is something that, you know, uh, you, you can spot or kind of evaluate even during the initial conversation with the person. And that's, you know, uh, be always uh, mindful of... Uh, what you say thing, how you say things, and be, be, be always make sure that whatever you're trying to relate is fairly clear to the audience concerned. That's as far as data scientists go. Now, with machine learning engineers, we, say we, 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 we look for people with good coding skills, people who are pragmatic, people who can appreciate and see any pitfalls that, that may uh, lie ahead. But what's the soft skill that I often look for in machine learning engineers? Perseverance. Uh, often, uh, especially these days, we've got to uh, try out new technologies. You know, the technologies come out, you know, they could be buggy, they may not work, you may have to find a workaround. Uh, as, as, as far as a machine learning engineer is concerned, you know, you may fail before a few times before you reach a particular goal or um, whatever's been set up for you. It's very important not to give up, but just mm. to continue, continue, continue. Only then you'll, find, you'll reach your final goal and be able to deliver on the production. Like I said, communication for data scientists and perseverance for machine learning engineers. Yeah, both both make total sense to me. And a lot of the clients that we, we recruit for when, um, you know, recruiting for more machine learning focused engineers, on that thread, you know, very often we, we get asked for people that have kind of a an innate curiosity as well in the problem solving approach, you know, because they're just, they're really keen to think, well, how can I improve this? How can I make this better? And I think that really aligns with what you're saying there about perseverance, because you know, obviously that won't always fall into play day one, you know, but somebody that actually won't, won't let go, you know, with a bit, bit between their teeth until they find the problem, you know, to, to solve. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, totally, totally agree with that. Um, okay, fantastic. So, Really great to understand how you've gone about that approach to, you know, building the team uh, in what is seemingly a very kind of complex, um, you know, uh, speech and, and text uh, linguistics focused solution. Um, what I'd be really keen to understand now is, is, I guess, sort of the wider context as a data leader in, in the sort of world that we're living in now. You know, I, I personally find the data science space just unbelievably exciting because of all the advances that we're seeing and it feels like it's sort of exponentially growing you know in relation to other areas of technology and, and sort of really evolving um so what um what are you seeing as kind of the most exciting trends in in the data science industry currently and i guess that can be within you know relation to the work you're doing at connects one or even outside of that if there's anything in particular that you're uh, you know you're finding quite exciting at the moment of course yeah uh if I had to pick probably one uh, one area, obviously, is the, is the adv- advances uh, in natural language processing that have been happening uh, recently uh, to 
uh, to put things uh, in a different language, so the, the rise of so the so-called the uh, large language models (LLMs), which are capable of handling so many tasks with NLP. I think that's been quite. Uh, uh, most talked uh, recently themes, and uh, I'm excited where things are going to go in that respect. Uh, so um, I think with with all the excitement of uh, advancing uh, our NLP models come certain challenges. You know, those models are massive. You know, they require lots of compute power. Of course, down the line, we're probably going to solve some of the problems. But as things stand, it is uh, the, the issues... Uh, uh, surrounding how we use those technologies, how we deploy them, how we also um, make sure we stand uh, uh, in, in line with the law of the regulations. You know, I think because of the speed, how how fast these technologies get developed, you know, uh, let's say GPT, a new GPT model comes out every almost, almost every year with more parameters, you know, larger uh larger model that's capable of uh, producing more impressive results. You know, how do we uh, make sure, A, we stay in line with the regulations, but which always kind of, you know, tiptoeing behind behind it? Uh, but we, we need to make sure we address it and think, start thinking about it earlier. And also how we take care of uh, our clients' data and data protection things. Yeah. So not everybody will want to have their data um, uh, ending up on somebody else's cloud in somebody's environment. Our clients take uh, data protection extremely seriously. So we're pretty much... Con con we pretty much, we, in a way, we are constrained, and what we can do, given the current technologies uh, and the developments, and what uh, you know, uh, so what what we were trying to was striving to achieve. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think you know, we, it wouldn't be a podcast at the moment if we didn't talk about ChatGPT in some form, and obviously the advances of uh, you know language models that we're, we're all sort of seeing now. Um, what role do you see uh, ChatGPT playing? I guess in your particular context, do you feel it has um, a particular use, a particular application within the work you're currently doing uh, that connects once around that sort of speech and, and language recognition? Of course, yeah, you can think of lots of uh, application of ChatGPT within the uh, contact center as a service. Uh, in a, probably talking for hours here, but one particular uh, and very sort of clear and obvious use case is the development of chatbots or, you know, sometimes known as virtual assistant, uh, which falls under the generic, uh, generic rubric of conversational AI. So building those machines that can take the interaction uh, out of the you know, agent domain and make sure the machine interacts with the customer. So that's one of the clear case of application of ChatGPT, building a system that's able to interact with the user, answer their questions, complete the task that uh, they're trying to solve to, to the best of abilities, bef rather than uh, you know, um, making the make, making the, the 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 mundane task of uh, a, taking away the mundane task of the agents. Having said that, uh, ChatGPT currently is very reactive. It's only able to kind of only um, react uh, to what you're saying. Mm. It's, you, you start you start the interaction, and you know, it replies to you, and it continues by kind of in the question answer form, so to speak. I'm really looking forward where ChatGPT. Uh, uh, going next with uh, a in terms of uh, mild, mild mixed uh, initiative model, whereby it just doesn't 
possibly can reply to you, but actually mm. also takes initiative and continues the dialogue to make sure it collects all the information it needs. For that, it obviously needs the domain knowledge, domain knowledge but also uh, looking forward, how we'll be able to uh, accommodate those solutions in, in, in our environments, whether how do we essentially scale down those systems, yet preserving the, the, the functionality and the accuracy with which they perform. Mm, that's a really interesting point, actually. I never thought about that before, about ChatGPT, I guess, is still, as it exists at the moment, quite a reactive mm -hmm. platform, isn't it? And I think that it'd be very interesting to understand how, I think already a lot of people have had their mind blown by, you know, how powerful it is as a, mm -hmm. you know, solution. But I think you're right, that's sort of next step. When we talk about AI, you know, very often AI, obviously, is, we're nowhere near any kind of sentient intelligence. Um, but I think that you're right. When when we get to the stage where we've got sort of almost like a chat GPT level of computational power and sort of consistency that that is able to marry together context and you know I guess using sophisticated knowledge graphs to to do that. Um, that's at the point I think people will start to think actually do you know what real AI is here? Obviously you know yeah. it's something that's it definitely it, it feels like it needs another layer just mm. beyond of you know responding and another and, and that the next layer of uh, intelligence you know which will be handling the, you know the dial and collecting it needs to know what bits of information actually it needs to collect yeah 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 um, absolutely yeah yeah interesting well like I say I think the, the speed of which it's evolving you know it's like every other week there's a new a new uh, update on the model so I think it's a very interesting space to watch especially with Google now mm. obviously uh, hot on the heels and uh, you know chomping at the bit to, uh, you know, to catch up with them so uh, yeah I think it'll be a very interesting space indeed um, okay and, and lastly I kind of want to draw on um, I suppose there's a lot of value I think in hearing um, how you've overcome certain challenges and clearly in the role that you've you've played at Connect One of building a team, um, you know, you've done an incredible job, but no doubt it probably wasn't a totally smooth ride. Uh, and always there's challenges and pitfalls that come along the way when building anything from scratch that, you know, no, nobody necessarily foresaw. So um, talk us through, if you can, some of the, the challenges that you've encountered in the last couple of years, you know, I guess the biggest challenges as a data leader and, you know, how you've overcome those. Of course, it, if I had to pick actually one challenge, the biggest challenge is actually uh, finding talent. That's probably was the, the the number one challenge for me as a, as as a, as a data science uh, lead. Um, so uh, these days, you know, in the UK and in other countries, there's lots of. Um, Universities which have embraced uh, the importance of AI. You know, you've got. I think we uh, most recently we only had masters in AI, but these days actually you can do a, you can do your bachelor's data science. There's a massive proliferation of interest in, in terms of what universities uh, can offer. So having said, and that cup, that coupled with the uh, interest uh, people's interest in AI. Uh, resulted in lots of in a massive application pool of applicants, you know, applying for jobs. And now, the, on the other hand, we've also been lucky post-COVID period. Actually, there's been it's been a rise uh, also in uh, those vacancies that we we require the, uh, the, those skills for. But I think that we still talk about the need for more and more and more. But to me, more to actually translate uh, into finding the best very good quality uh, applicant. And that's where we've actually been seeing a lot of struggle. We see a lot of people just coming out of university, uh, you know, applying for these positions. And I understand it's all, not always easy to get that job because A, because you're competing against lots of other people, and B, 
you you still need to have some uh, something something practical, some practical work that you have fallen fallen back on. And you know, mm. people have been really creative about you know the use they use portfolio, you know, their portfolio, their projects. You know, some actually degrees uh, offer kind of placements, which are very very tangible bit of. Uh, work exposure that the, the, the applicants can take uh, care of. So, like I said, yeah, finding the best people, uh, the creme de la creme for us um, has been um, important, but important. But I think we've been quite successful uh, in that respect. So what we've done, we, we do take our uh, selection uh, process quite seriously. But what, what's, I think, what's emerging, uh, it is the, the very first crucial point of selection process are equally as important as the last ones. And I'll explain what I mean. Uh, when we have a first chat, you know, there's that initial conversation, I would say it's very uh, important actually and wise to ask to gauge a person's generic knowledge of data science, even though they may not be expecting it, even though it's, it's, it's initial conversation. Because if it becomes very apparent whether the person does have the foundation, the foundation knowledge of the data science or not. Because if you don't do it at the very beginning, essentially you get to round, round three stage to stage three, and it becomes apparent actually you pretty much kind of wasted your own time and the applicant's time. It's important yeah. to gauge person's knowledge right at the very beginning. Yeah. But also at the very end, when you spot, uh, let's say you you have a you're interviewing a batch of a batch of candidates, you have a batch of seven, five, six. Uh, in, if in that batch you find somebody who stands out in terms of the knowledge, in terms of uh, their best fit, don't wait for the next batch. Go for this person because these people are not going to be there for, for, for a long time. Mm. They will be snapped within the couple um, or weeks, months. Like I said, the, the industry is extremely competitive and it is, ex it is extremely hard to find good quality people. I think mm. these are the two bits of advice I would give you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, obviously for hearing from, from my side of the coin an approach like that, it's really refreshing um, because I, I think you're right. Obviously, that entry level, you know, we've seen a, a mass of candidates very recently since data science has become a more, um, you know, understood and, and robust practice. We've seen a mass of candidates go into those degrees. And like you said, it does become quite difficult when there is no kind of real world applied experience to bring to bear in an interview how do you different differentiate between those candidates so i think at entry level absolutely it's a real it's a real challenge um, so any company or indeed recruitment agency i think you need to develop a very robust filtration process around that and and for us when we're you know obviously we recruit across a range of, of seniority from very you know, high level exec appointments through to you know um junior data scientists but from the junior end what we see is you know, obviously, we'll always make sure we meet every candidate as well, because I think that's the very important point that you raised earlier about you could have a first-class degree in data science from a Redbrick University, but if when you're sat opposite somebody, if they can't articulate themselves or, you know, they don't have the best communication skills, I do think in this day and age, it's a really important box to check and, you know, something that you can't really assess from a, a CV at the end of the day. Um, but the other piece that we see that's quite important as well around that is do we feel this person actually sees data science and AI as their passion? Or is it somebody that's just in a degree thinking, well, I'll have a go at this because it might get me a job. Mm -hmm. And actually, when you kind of approach a candidate sort of through that lens, they do tend to separate themselves quite quickly. You know, those that have done maybe their own uh, pet projects or, you know, they've gone, like, say, done proactive internships off their own bat, that kind of thing, or they, you know, they've got code on GitHub, which they can show. You know, those kind of candidates, you, you can sort of tell that they're really in it for the right reasons. And, um, you know, so I think that's a, 
a really interesting point that you raised. And then about the actual not not waiting for a candidate as well. I think that's a very good point because, you know, in this market when, let's face it, a lot of the big tech companies recently have made a lot of mass redundancies. There's been a kind of an influx of talent onto the market and that sort of supply demand paradigm. You know, the, the, the supply has actually outstripped demand for the first time in probably good couple of years so in this sort of market it is a little bit more of a buyer's market and a lot of clients thinking well actually i've got a great batch of profiles here but you know i'll probably wait for the next batch and make the right decision mm. i totally agree the best candidates will always find you know a role and there always will be yeah. demand for those candidates so if you find a great candidate that you want to move forward with then yeah i would suggest to move forward yeah. so um what we also found uh very useful is we, we try to uh have a candidate being interviewed by as many people as possible within the company internally let's say four or five people because i, I really strongly believe that the, the more opinions you get about a candidate, the, the better view of a candidate you you will have uh it's important, to, you know. It's often there are the right agreements, but sometimes you, you you get a bit of disagreement, slight, and you know it's not always fifty fifty percent clear cut. But it's actually very interesting to know and get the other side of the story. Mm. You know, well, you know, everybody comes with perspective, with different experiences, uh, and I think uh, having uh, more than one, two, or even three people you know, interview the candidate is, is a really good idea. Yeah, totally agree, because it gets sort of more mutual buy-in from the team, doesn't it, when someone joins? But also, I think the other way around as well, psychologically, you know, if there's a lot of um, demand or a lot of uh, competition for a good candidate, I think those companies that have exposed more of themselves to the candidate and they've met more people in the team, I think they're going to feel more warmer towards yeah. that that company and more likely, quite frankly, to choose that company over another another company where they've only met maybe one person within the team. You know, if you kind of know multiple people in the team and get a bit more of a feel for the culture, you're more likely to secure a good candidate absolutely, as well. So, absolutely. yeah, I totally agree. Okay, fantastic. Well, I think it's been an absolutely awesome chat, uh, Dimitri. Really enjoyed it. And um, I like to end Great. every podcast, as you may or may not know, um, with asking for your your one favourite piece of advice that you've, you've kind of gathered throughout your career if there's sort of one go-to bit of advice that you'd like to pass on to your uh, your fellow person, um, what would that be? I would say never stop learning. You know, mm. there's with so much coming out, uh, so much new stuff, so many so many technologies, so many advances. You you should always, amongst the, in addition to the work you're doing, administer the great work you're doing, always make sure you set a bit of bit of time for continuous learning that's very important and always strive you know strive for excellence even beyond the point of excellence you know there's lots of as, as you'd find out probably there's lots of people out there you know who are maybe probably better than you if, if only if we try to stretch ourselves push ourselves very hard only then we'll be able to succeed mm. i love that i think that's a really great bit of advice because I, I look at myself personally i think when times when you start to maybe doubt yourself or you know your your self-esteem takes a bit of a knock very often of course always learning always developing there's a real kind of real application to that because obviously you're growing your skill set and you're going to be better at your job but i also feel psychologically there's a piece there about you're you're still growing you're still developing as a person and i think that's something very often i look back over my career at the times when i've been probably least happy and it's actually probably because I've plateaued or become quite stale and I actually haven't been growing haven't been learning haven't been developing um so if you can sort of make sure you're always in that mindset I think you know you you, you stay a lot uh, more positive yeah not sure if that's a good point and our conversation on that but actually having self-doubt is perfectly normal I would say having self-doubt doubting your work sometimes is actually better than not doing it because 
if 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 we're thinking, oh no, not not what if our work is not good enough, we 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 can push even further ourselves, and that would make our work even better. So that's perfectly normal to self doubt, and I, I strongly believe that that will only make us even better scientists and better at what we do. Mm, absolutely, was well, Dimitri. Really enjoyed the chat again. Thank you very much for being here with Thank us today. You. Really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, I, I certainly will uh, keep my eyes and ears open for uh, all the, the great things to come at Connects One and, and how you guys sort of move forward from here. Fantastic. Sounds good. <laughs> Take care. Thank you.